Hello, Evan. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for your time and willingness to talk uh, for the Foreign Policy Talks podcast today. Uh, I'm so honored and glad having you here with many of your analysis, uh, commentaries, and impressed uh, mostly by all of them. Uh, today, we are going to talk about a very interesting topic, which is Indonesia-China relationship. You've been writing a lot of pieces about this. And let me start by asking you a quite provocative question. How do you measure a relationship with China today? And do you think we are in a good term or you think that we are too dependent on China or maybe politically too weak to China? What is your view? Uh, I think a good starting point to consider any relationship with a great power is to what extent we are considered equal partners. Uh, and by this, I mean that we are still open to all kinds of cooperation, whether it's defense, economics, education, um, um, trade, and, and all of those, but while at the same time making sure that our overall foreign policy alignments, our own foreign policy strategies and goals um, are ne not necessarily um, uh, bent to their will. Uh, that it is our strategic interest that we're defending, and that of course in any relationship with any great power, there's benefits and risks, and the idea um, that we uh, should be able to balance those benefits and risks, I think is at the heart of what I consider to be um, the standard bearer for an equal relationship, which is um, a pragmatic equidistance. We need to be able to, um, to cooperate on issues where our interests converge, uh, but at the same time, we need to be able to raise um, um, uh, the issues further and, and, um, and refuse to cooperate. Uh, when our interests diverge. So when it comes to China, I think for a long time, the only measurement that a lot of people have been using is the idea of, of economic engagement. And to a large part, I think that's true. I think economically speaking, uh, certainly prior to the opening of diplomatic relations in the 90s, we are certainly much more intertwined with China uh, in terms of economic and trade and investment and others. Um, my worry is that economic engagement then translates into um, a less assertive and a less uh, uh, outspoken profile when it comes to our foreign policy issues uh, that may be at cross purposes with the Chinese. And, and this is something that uh, I think has been, has been particularly difficult um, in the last five to six years, where there are things that we normally speak about or, or take a strong stance on, we now do not. Um, so for me, overall, yes, uh, the relationship is uh, yeah, on a good footing. Um, I think overall, though, this, uh, this image of Indonesia-China relations as uh, going from strong to strong, I think is not um, particularly accurate. I think it's high profile. I think it's still brittle um, in some parts because it's based on uh, on purely economic uh, relations um, and it's not built on long-term people-to-people uh, relationships or um, across-the-board relationships. China is good on some issues but not on every single issue. So I think, uh, the, and also most importantly, China is also the one country I feel today that probably has the potential to raise the highest domestic political costs for uh, the political elites in Jakarta. Um, if you are painted as a China lackey, for example, the political cost for you is a lot higher than if you are painted as a Washington lackey. And because of that, because of our history, 
uh, not just bilaterally, uh, but also in terms of the history of ethnic Chinese Indonesians in Indonesia, um, any relationship with China will always have this Achilles heel that at any given moment, it can be turned on its head because of domestic political interest in Jakarta. Very interesting. So do you think it's going to be backlash if we are too close to China, at, at least for the domestic political elites? I mean, you know, we see some names are very close to China. Do you think it's going to be costly for them at the end? Um, I think what is uh, what is interesting with, uh, with bilateral relationship with China these days is that the sense of animosity or the... Uh, uh, um, acrimonious relationship with China is not a constant feature. Uh, in fact, it only comes out when and if the political elites uh, will manipulate the issue to attack the government, for example, or to attack local elites who, um, who open doors for Chinese businesses, for example. So it's, it's sort of um, a reserved issue in the sense that the sense of, 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 um, of tension is not always there. It only comes up uh, um, uh, during uh, political moments or, or, or opportunities. Um, so I think from that sense, being close to China in general is not uh, uh, the main problem. It is the conditions under which that particular closeness can then be manipulated against mm -hmm. you. And this is something that has nothing to do with the bilateral relationship itself. It is more a function of how the domestic political configurations of the day um, uh, come into play. So I think in general, uh, being close to, um, uh, to China, whether it's uh, from a political standpoint or from a business standpoint, I think it's fine on a daily basis. But if you're on that front line of being close and, 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 and engaging with China on a daily basis, I think you are aware that at any given day, if the political winds change, um, your fortunes uh, 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 can change because that strong capital that you have um, uh, can also be turned against you. But the flip side of that is, I think in general, it's good for Indonesia that there are a lot more stakeholders and players who have built strong ties with China, whether it's mm. at the political elite level, at the people-to-people -people level, at the education sector, uh, research, business, etc. Uh, because I think for a long time, Indonesia-China relationship uh, has been an elite affair. There's no ballast at the broader societal level. Um, and this is something that, that I think is only starting to grow. Uh, and that also means that we can open up multiple channels of communications uh, uh, with China. Uh, and it also makes sure that we put multiple eggs in multiple baskets in China. So when it comes to strategic capital, or when it comes to uh, uh, making sure that we have uh, good graces and, 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 and good relationships with across uh, different sectors of the Chinese elite, I think that's good for us. Um, it'll be horrible if everything that we have with China all rests uh, based on the personal relationship, let's say, between um, the Secretary General of the Communist Party and our president and nothing else. I think that's bad. I think you should develop uh, multiple uh, uh, channels and you should uh, cultivate um, uh, multiple relationships. Interesting. Uh, 
Evan, in January, you worried for the Jakarta Post, you're saying that Indonesia needs a new strategy in dealing with China. So what has been wrong in Indonesia's relationship with China? Do you still think the same way today, that we need to have a new strategy, or what do you think? I do. I do think we still need a new strategy in, in several ways. Uh, I think one, uh, our relationship with China is so complex now. Uh, in fact, I would say it's probably the most complex relationship we have uh, with an external power these days, certainly much more complex than the U.S. or Australia. Mm. Uh, in, in that kind of relationship, you need different instruments of the state. You need to be able to integrate uh, the defense elements, the foreign policy elements, the economic elements, uh, the social elements, in, um, and, and, and figure out how to best uh, deal with China. How do we make sure that our economic ties can grow? How do we make sure that our vulnerabilities uh, are, are minimized, our risks are addressed, and our interests are not sidelined? And this requires a whole of, a whole of government effort. And this hasn't happened yet, uh, uh, I think. And to give one example, I think one of the flashpoints in the relationship that sort of brings uh, to the front how complicated the relationship is is probably uh, with regards to the South China Sea uh, and the North China Sea. Um, and, and this is extremely complicated because on the one hand, on our side, we have multiple competing bureaucratic interests between the Navy, the Coast Guard, the Fisheries Ministry, um, the military, uh, the Foreign Ministry, the Palace. Everybody has their own uh, particular set of goals uh, that, uh, that they would like to have with regards to China. Some parts of the government of the government would like it that we have no crisis at all, even if it means not arresting Chinese fishermen. Some parts mm -hmm. of the government would say, no, we have to detain them and we have to publicly disclose um, the arrest. And in fact, if we could blow up the ships, we should do that as well. Yeah. And, and others would say, yes, we have this problem. So therefore we need a bigger budget. So everyone has their own pet issues and pet interests that they focus on. And this creates a problem because from the Chinese side, they're a lot more unified than we are uh, because of, of the nature of their political system. Yeah. Number two, they have the time. They don't need to rush things when it comes to key interests like the South China Sea or UNCLOS. They have the time. We don't. Uh, our Southeast Asian neighbors don't. Philippines is in desperate need for energy. What mm -hmm. happens if they cannot uh, explore their energy resources in the disputed parts of the South China Sea? Mm -hmm. So for our friends and for our, and for our own sake, we actually don't have time. It's not a luxury that we have. Number mm -hmm. two, uh, what worries me is that because everything about China in the last um, 10, 15 years is about economics, um, there are worries that you would sacrifice some parts of your strategic interests at the altar of good relationship with China. Uh, and I think uh, this is... Uh, this is worrying not just for us, but also for our friends in Southeast Asia. Uh, there's been concerns, for example, that Indonesia uh, would prefer to play a lower key um, uh, um, uh, role in, 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 um, in ASEAN, or that Indonesia uh, would not stand up and be more assertive when it comes to uh, the South China Sea, uh, or that Indonesia would not risk a crisis uh, um, with China over something that's clear as day that uh, they have no rights 
under UNCLOSE to claim parts of our EEZ in the North Natuna Sea. Instead of us allowing ourselves to think more, more strategically and figure out options uh, and, uh, and, and, and how, how do we get China to basically stop coming and fish in our waters. Let's say that's the main goal. We haven't been able to come up with a good strategy to get there. I'm not even talking about uh, a much bigger goal of, of, of getting China to denounce Nine Dash Line, right? That's ridiculous. But just to have a simple goal, which is how do we get China to stop fishing in the North Natuna Sea? Even then, the option, as, as you talk to policymakers, is always being presented to us um, as a stark binary. Oh, we either go to war or we just be peace with, uh, with China. It's not, that's not how the world works. It's not just war or peace. There's 50 shades in between, right? Um, and figuring out escalation steps uh, diplomatically. Do you call the ambassador? Do you review the Belt and Road projects? How do you show um, uh, to China that you mean business when it comes to the North Natuna Sea? What is the point of having a good diplomatic capital and strategic capital in Beijing, good relationship, if you cannot utilize that to get China to back down on not the whole South China Sea, just Natuna, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, uh, I think in general, this, this, this bureaucratic um, infighting and, 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 and how different agencies have their own ideas about how to engage China, uh, what are the key strategic priorities, is a direct function, I'm afraid, of the fact that the president himself is not personally invested on a daily basis to manage these um, strategic affairs. So as long as that doesn't change, China can just pick us apart. We can, we, they can just wait until we um, essentially inadvertently uh, mess up. So for example, uh, if we somehow don't have the same understanding of UNCLOS across mm. different agencies and ministries, and we inadvertently sign an MOU on fisheries cooperation that somehow implicitly acknowledges that China has a right to fish there to begin with. Mm. That would be awful. Mm-hmm. That would ruin everything that we stand for. It would ruin UNCLOS, and it would certainly ruin our neighbors. Um, and my worry is that this is... a. Um, uh, 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 it's a trend. It's not a one-off thing. It's been going on for years. Um, we couldn't do anything to help our friends uh, during the Scarborough Show uh, incident in 2012, for example, uh, which is why uh, the Philippines went uh, to UNCLOS Tribunal. We have to realize that the fact that our Southeast Asian friends are trying to find their own sets of options Vietnam is trying to find their own options. Philippines is trying to find their own options. The fact that these countries um, are trying to find their non-ASEAN options, that should tell you how far ASEAN has fallen because of Indonesia's absent leadership. Hmm. So no, for me, the short answer is um, we still haven't quite figured out uh, how to deal with China. We still haven't quite figured out should we just take all the benefits but not willing to take on any risk uh, when it comes to dealing with China. And we certainly uh, don't have a strategy or a policy uh, that would appropriately engage with China on things that are important to us, Mm -hmm. uh, making sure that we maintain our interests while ensuring that the relationship grows. I think that's not something that we uh, uh, have met or, or achieved so far. 
Thank you for your answer. So you're saying that we have never been in one voice in the language China. So I think that it should be, I mean, that one voice should be predominantly defined, identified by the highest authority, which is President Jokowi, right? I mean, even though that he's not invested so much on strategic affairs, as you said. Let me move on to what your, uh, to get your view on President Jokowi's closeness to China. We all know that since the onset of the COVID pandemic, Indonesia-China relations have grown very close, uh, and including health and vaccine cooperation, defense relationship. Do you see this closer relationship between Jakarta and Beijing means that President Jokowi favors China than the U.S., or you think that Indonesia has maintained a equal relationship uh, among those two? Uh, I think if you listen to the rhetoric uh, from the government, I think they would certainly like to claim uh, uh, that it's all equal. Uh, but if you look at the development, I don't think it's equal. Um, how many times has Jokowi called Xi Jinping and how many times has Jokowi called Trump? Mm. That alone should tell you who our president likes to call on a regular basis, right? Mm -hmm. uh, does Jokowi pick up the phone to call Xi Jinping or Trump when he has a question, how do you grow the economy by building infrastructure? That's not the question that uh, we're going to ask Trump. So yeah. for me, um, whether we like it or not, in real terms, I think at least over the last uh, four years, it is certainly the case that we are tilting more towards China. Yeah. Uh, that's partially because it's an ongoing trend uh, from the Indonesia-China side. Uh, I think uh, the rapid growth in economy, uh, tourism, people-to-people -people interaction, I think that comes natural um, uh, because, let's face it, uh, the U.S. is far away. American presence in the region is a function of geopolitics, not geographic distance, right? Mm -hmm. um, so naturally, because of, of, of growth in ties and uh, uh, economic ties and, and people-to-people, -people, it's, it's only natural that, that we grow closer to China. Uh, but in the past, I think we have been quite successful at making sure that, so let's say we do 10 cooperation with China, we also do 10 equal cooperation with the U.S. Mm. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think if, let's say, hypothetically, I were to say there are 10 strategic issues across the board, I think China probably has a competitive edge against the U.S., in seven or eight out of those 10. Uh, the US has an edge in probably two or three. So China, for example, is, is certainly leading in terms of economics, education, uh, uh, trade, investment, and, 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 um, and, and, and tourism, while the US, for example, uh, maintains a lead in, let's say, security cooperation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and on this front, I don't think um, China can uh, realistically replace the U.S. as a security partner anytime soon. Um, the U.S. and Australia remains the top largest provider of military education and training. Uh, we barely send five people to China, but on a given year, we could send up to 100 people to U.S. and Australia. So it's, it's, it's not even close uh, in terms of security relationship. And military technology, we don't use many uh, Chinese-made hardware. In fact, we have not so pleasant experience with them before. Um, so from that front, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to happen that China will replace uh, the security relationship that we have with the U.S. or, or the West. But in general, uh, because I think China has more of a competitive edge compared to the U.S. in, um, in 
in a larger number of issues, although it's new, again, it's still high profile, but not very deep. It's still brittle in, uh, uh, to some degree. Um, and the U.S. has a long and deep and enduring ties, but in only a small number of issues. Because of this, I think COVID has accelerated or, 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 or amplified that trend um, when it comes to vaccine research, when mm. it comes to PPEs, medical supplies, uh, rapid test equipments and all that. Uh, the last six months have shown us about 80% of uh, those providers are somehow affiliated or are Chinese companies, right? Mm. Uh, and at a time when the US, Australia, or the West were simply missing in Indonesia's uh, calculation. Um, so I think what COVID did was merely, I think, accelerating an existing trend rather than uh, fundamentally changing uh, the relationship uh, in broad daylight. I think it's just accelerating a, a, a pre-existing trend. Mm, interesting. Uh, let me go back to the South China Sea issue. Uh, can you update to the listeners? Uh, I mean, or can you share your view? How, what is the best solutions to solve uh, the South China Sea? Or do you think it's going to take a long and, uh, you know, a very complicated time to solve the issue? Uh, so we have to be clear what we mean when we say solving the South China Sea issues, because I think the public has this impression that, for example, the ASEAN-China Code of Conduct process supposed to solve the issue. Mm. That's not true. Mm. Uh, what we have are tension management mechanisms. This is the ASEAN-China code of conduct process. And when it comes to solving uh, the issue, if that means uh, full and final maritime delimitation, as in who owns what and where, uh, that's a separate set of issues. If it's about maritime delimitation in terms of who owns what and where, that requires a separate um, negotiations, most likely a bilateral, although it could be trilateral, uh, as mandated by UNCLOS. You cannot, um, uh, you cannot finalize a maritime dispute in terms of delimitation and all that based on an ASEAN-China process. An mm -hmm. ASEAN-China process is a stopgap measure on the way towards that future eventual negotiations. Um, so without the goodwill that comes from a well-executed and well-enforced uh, code of conduct between the claimant states, it will be harder to negotiate full and final maritime delimitation in good faith. Mm. So for me, it's about a, a sequence of steps. It's not either or. It's about a sequence of steps. So what we have now in front of us are two different sets of tension management. One is the one that's multilateral in nature. Uh, this is the ASEAN-China Code of Conduct process. Uh, this is a tension management mechanism, which should, in theory, when it was first um, uh, crafted or planned as part of the, of the 2002 uh, Declaration of, of the Code of Conduct, uh, the DOC, uh, it was supposed to be eventually legally binding uh, to the claimants uh, involved. Uh, 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 you know, you don't militarize, you don't occupy new features, etc., uh, and this negotiation has been ongoing to create a legally binding uh, code of conduct for the claimants uh, since 2002. In 2018, um, China uh, wanted to have uh, a time frame, uh, a three-year deadline in which we can have a COC. In the past, China has been known to drag its feet. So the, uh, one of the reasons why 
it took us about 20 years just to get this far um, is because in the past, um, the first 10 years or so, China largely dragged its feet. So uh, the negotiation never got anywhere. Uh, and I think once the, uh, the overall balance of power shifted and now China already controls uh, its, its key points in the South China Sea, now China is willing to accelerate uh, um, the negotiation for the COC. But uh, that also means a low quality COC. Uh, for example, China uh, suggests that as part of, of the code of conduct, ASEAN states cannot conduct military exercises with uh, non-ASEAN members. Mm. That's very restrictive. And, and that would rule out uh, the Philippines and Thailand who are tr treaty allies of the United States. Um, so there's still a lot of... Um, tricky issues, but now China is much more committed to the process because now they feel they can dictate terms. So now we're on the uh, defensive end and, and trying to make sure that we would rather have uh, um, a high quality COC than to speed up the process, but have a lower quality one. So this is not clear. Uh, the expectation is that a high quality COC is more likely to happen under a strong ASEAN chair. Traditionally, Brunei and Cambodia have not been strong ASEAN chairs, which is exactly why China wants it to happen under Brunei or Cambodia, uh, because it will be easier for them. Uh, so I'll be interested to know whether and how Indonesia, who will be chair of ASEAN in 2023, will we actually lead ASEAN to finalize a COC in, in 2023, a high-quality one. So that, I think, would be a hugely significant um, a legacy for the Joko administration if we can actually pass the COC. So that's one multilateral tension management. A secondary tension management is a series of bilateral uh, uh, and minilateral arrangements. Uh, in the past, there used to be uh, uh, talks about joint developments between Philippines and China. In the past, uh, there were also something called joint marine seismic undertaking, GSMU. Uh, this is essentially um, research purposes. Um, and then I think um, much more importantly lately is the tension management between US and China. Uh, because whether we like it or not, China is not militarily concerned about the Philippines. It's not militarily concerned about Malaysia or Vietnam. It is extremely concerned about military uh, developments from the US side. Uh, so from that point, whenever there are tensions between US and China, it has ramifications to how China would behave in the South China Sea vis-a-vis -vis the Southeast Asian states. So I think as a tension management uh, part of the South China Sea, US-China um, uh, management, I think, is an essential feature. So these are, are, are some of the existing uh, tension management um, initiatives or, or, or concerns that we have. Uh, only the ASEAN-China one is multilateral and institutionalized. The others are more ad hoc, uh, bilateral, and, and, and subject to changes on a daily basis. But without figuring out how to integrate multilateral tension management with bilateral and minilateral tension managements, we cannot move forward. If we cannot move forward on tension management, there is no negotiations to be had uh, to have final delimitations. In the past, Fahashim Jalal, uh, uh, one of the most brilliant uh, minds in international law that Indonesia has ever had, um, 
has come up with all kinds of proposals. We don't lack ideas in the South China Sea about how to solve the issue. We don't. Uh, it's been discussed to death for the last um, 30, 40 years. The idea is only simply about political will. We don't have the political will, and we certainly cannot go up against China, which is the largest veto player, I think, in this whole arrangement. Um, so I think the problem with the ASEAN China COC process is that the tables are turned. In the past, we used to think this is our way of entangling China in good habits of dialogue, in multilateral settings, so that China doesn't pick us apart one by one. Over time, the tables are turned. China now has us in a bind. Mm. They realize that now they have the stronger power. They realize they changed the facts on the ground, and now they have the upper hand, so they will dictate the terms to us. And now we're stuck because we cannot come up with alternatives outside of the COC. This is all we have. And if this is how we're resting our credibility on, we cannot say, oh, uh, I'm changing my mind. I'm going to pursue some other paths. You cannot. So now I think we're, uh, we're in, a, in, a, in a terrible bind, I think, for Southeast Asians and certainly for Indonesia. Um, because let's face it, um, Indonesia's main role in the South China Sea negotiations is the very fact that we're a non-claimant. Uh, and, and supposedly an honest broker. But the way that China has been poking at us, it makes it seem like we are a claimant, although we're obviously not. But China mm. has managed to create that impression that we're a claimant. So Indonesia cannot be possibly neutral during the discussions at the ASEAN-China COC process. Indonesia itself has problems bilaterally, as we talked about earlier. So we cannot be seen as too forceful against China in some of these talks. So who's going to lead ASEAN? during the COC process. And this is my, my worry because uh, Indonesia is it. It's not going to be Singapore. It's not going to be Malaysia, Philippines, or Thailand. Or Vietnam. Or even Vietnam. Vietnam. <laughs> Vietnam actually has the best potential to lead ASEAN after us. But because of their own historical dispute with China, yeah. um, it's, it's a bit harder. So Indonesia have all the credentials, have all the historical burden and responsibilities but we're not really doing anything with it right now. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, my last question, Evan. Um, so, so to conclude what you have said earlier, that uh, the governments or the political elites in Jakarta have not uh, felt the urgency to have one China, I mean, uh, a clear China policy. Um, so I want, I'm curious to know, like, uh, who do you think can exactly drive Indonesia to have a better strategy in dealing with China? Should it be the foreign ministry? Should it be President Jokowi? Or, and we, in which aspects that, of the relationship that we should improve, uh, in, in your view? Mm, that's a very difficult question. Um, in an ideal world, and by ideal, I mean, if I were to have a blank slate of what the government looks like, <laughs> uh, in an ideal world, I think uh, we need to have a National Security Council. National we need Security to have, Council. yeah, we don't have a National Security Council uh, that is essentially an interagency executive arm of the president uh, that can formulate uh, and integrate uh, the different instruments of the state. Mm. We don't have that. Uh, so ideally, the policy could be discussed and formulated under a National Security Council backed by a president who is willing to politically commit to the process and manage the issue on a daily basis and make sure that the National Security Council can 
um, uh, can push uh, bureaucratic doors to get what they need and then have it executed in a strategic manner, uh, whether it's about the diplomatic side of things to the foreign ministry, the defense side of things to the Ministry of Defense and others. So for me, it starts with the top, um, from the president to the National Security Council to the respective agencies and ministries. That's an, in an ideal world, which we do not um, live in at, at, at the moment. Uh, but so that's one in terms of the process. The issues I think uh, that we have to work on, uh, economic and trade, I think in general, the, the macro picture sounds pretty. Uh, it's, it's on a growth trajectory, uh, but the micro picture underneath it is one that I'm not sure we have fully addressed, uh, whether it's about um, uh, Chinese laborers in, um, in Indonesia, uh, you know, to what extent, uh, they, for example, uh, create their own potential local communities outside of of the surrounding areas, uh, and that I think uh, will uh, will open doors to potential political manipulations down the line. We have no sense yet about the kind of um, uh, uh, a potential for debt and corruption that we haven't quite figured out yet, because when you do uh, business uh, in terms of foreign loans and others with uh, with the West, the, the strings are a lot tighter, right? The restrictions, mm -hmm. the requirements, it's a lot tighter. With China, as I understand it, uh, it's less tighter in 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 many ways. So we don't know what does that entail uh, uh, for corruption, for potential violations of our own laws about um, environmental assessment and others. We don't know yet. We don't have a good assessment of the broader social political impact of Chinese economic ties with Indonesia. All we have are the macroeconomic pictures, growth, employment, you know, those things are all there. But the broader assessment, I don't think we have a good sense yet. And the stuff that I've been telling you for the last five minutes are just anecdotal, right? We have no systematic way as of yet um, um, to explore those broader social political impact of of economic engagement, so we don't know that. Um, Security-wise, I think I'm okay with the fact that we don't have a much closer relationship. I think a closer relationship on the security front can raise too many uh, domestic political problems, and it may even revive um, the specter of old communism back into mm -hmm. the public uh, discussion, which I think doesn't help anybody. Uh, plus, their military hardware and, and, and training aren't as high quality as, as we've experienced with other partners anyway. So I'm okay with uh, the military relationship as it is. It'll be nice to have a little bit more uh, military exercises. It'll be nice to have more language training from both sides and have a little bit more exchanges. I think it could do with a little bit of that uh, because I think everything we know about the Chinese military and everything the Chinese military knows about us has to be mediated to English language publications. And I think that gets lost in translation, right? Um, so we need, I think, more language um, training and, and, and military exchanges, um, maybe in a smaller scale. Uh, from a people-to-people -people relationship, I think we also need a much more robust engagement uh, 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 on the policy research front. I think education-wise, it's been growing. We send thousands of students there. 
across the board, uh, more scholarships are being given. So I think that's on an on a upward trajectory. Uh, we can debate the extent to which, um, you know, which universities in, in China are of um, good quality and all of that. But I think that's a separate issue. But the point is from the Belter relationship, I think education is there. But policy research, I think, is still not there yet. Uh, I think there's very small number of people who engage the Chinese uh, research community on a regular basis and vice versa. Mm. Again, uh, the issue is language, uh, past stigma. You know, it's not that easy to to learn Chinese language these days. Uh, um, uh, uh, it 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 should be, but it's not. I think uh, trying to finding a tutor is not the problem, right? It's it's mm-hmm. it's finding the broader interest of language studies, of Chinese studies in universities in Indonesia, uh, having multiple think tanks conducting policy research of joint interest with China. That's, um, uh, that should be the goal. And, and I don't think we, we, we have that yet. Um, and I think most importantly, uh, on, on the foreign policy side, I hate to say this, but uh, I think we in Indonesia need to step up our game. I think China is playing the game as if it's a great power, and it is in this in this part of the world. I don't think we've stepped up our game yet. I think we are too transactional in our approach to China. We focused on the benefits, we focused on the economic ties, uh, but we seem to back down when uh, strategic interests uh, dictates that we take some risk. Uh, uh, in addressing China in a more public manner uh, uh, and, and not necessarily megaphone diplomacy, but sometimes speaking out on your interest is more important uh, than speaking them behind closed doors. Mm. And this is, is something that I think we, we haven't quite figured out. So from this, uh, from the foreign policy angle, it's more about the imbalance, I think, uh, uh, in the competing foreign policy strategies. And I think we, uh, we have to significantly step up and lastly, when it comes to politics, there's nothing that we can do about our history. Uh, it's there, it's bloody, it's not nice. Uh, and because we haven't fully come to terms with our history uh, going back to uh, the 1940s up to 1965, especially 1965, um, let alone 98, there will always be the potential that from our side, it will become a political issue. It will always be open to political manipulation. In an ideal world, that should no longer be the case. I think in the future, a strong uh, bilateral relationship between Indonesia and China, for me, the ultimate benchmark is, can it be politicized? Cannot be politicized. Mm. Yeah, if it can be politicized, then it's not strong enough. Mm. Just like with Australia. Australia, we have one of the best relationships with Australia over the last 10, 15 years since the Lombok Treaty. Yeah. And yet, a small incident on either side of, of the political aisle, on our side or theirs, can just derail everything, as if the entire progress over the last 15 years just gone in smoke. Mm. That, for me, is not, is not enduring. Mm. So uh, uh, if we ever reach the stage where our relationship can endure domestic political changes, domestic elite manipulation, that, I think, uh, is, is where I would say, yes, we've reached the point with China where we have an enduring partnership. Until 
that uh, comes to be and uh, as long as the domestic political elites in Indonesia can still twist and turn and manipulate uh, the bilateral relationship as a political issue, um, I think it will always be brittle and, 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 and fragile. Hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much, Evan, for sharing your thoughts to Foreign Politics Podcast. Um, it, it was very enjoy- enjoying, enjoyable conversations and hopefully insightful for many people out there. Uh, I would like to share this uh, link of the um, podcast to many people out there, especially uh, government people. So hopefully they can get your views on that. And then we are part of having you as one of the best young foreign policy subject thinkers in Indonesia. And please keep continue your work and we will follow your, your work uh, in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Great.